In 2007, a group of friends in San Francisco started a website called Justin TV. The site was dedicated to what came to be known as life casting. It was named after Justin Can, who streamed himself full-time, 24-7, on the site, using a laptop he carried around in a backpack, which was hooked up to a webcam that he attached to a baseball cap that he wore. After a few years of just Justin, and then a few dozen other select full-timers, and in some cases nearly full-timers, that were chosen to be broadcast on the site, they began to make some of the same tools they were using to stream themselves available to anyone who wanted them. The always-on webcam thing didn't really catch on the way that they thought it would, in part due to the limitations of technology back before the smartphone became dominant, but the video channels where people could talk at a camera that technology did catch on. If you imagine something like YouTube, but all of the videos are just people filming themselves and what they're doing all day long, you've got a pretty accurate mental image of Justin TV. And as the site grew, more and more people began to share their lives with the world in this way. In 2011, four years after its founding, Justin TV split off a category of videos that were doing particularly well on its main site and published them over on their own separately branded page. This secondary page was called Twitch TV, and the videos that were featured were live streams of people playing video games. Instead of just talking at the camera, these videos featured people who would talk at the camera while playing their favorite games, allowing folks at home around the world to watch them and hear their commentary. This subcategory of videos eventually eclipsed all of the other video types that were being presented on Justin TV. And the folks running the site, picking up on this and deciding to go where the audience was, rebranded their parent company as Twitch Interactive in February of 2014. In August, of 2014, they shut down Justin TV entirely so they could focus on Twitch. Twitch started getting attention from the rest of Silicon Valley around the time that Justin TV was shut down. At the beginning of 2014, this one people playing video games on camera streaming site was considered to be the fourth largest source of peak internet traffic in the United States. And the same month that they refocused everything on Twitch, the company was bought by Amazon for $970 million. Amazon added Twitch to their ever-growing collection of services provided to Amazon Prime members. As of the day I'm recording this, you get a Twitch Prime membership if you are an Amazon Prime member, which comes with a slew of free games and in-game items each month, plus credit that you can contribute to gamers that you like to watch on the service. More about that in a second. Amazon, via Twitch, then acquired a company called Curse Incorporated, which was a hardcore video gamer community and service that allowed players to receive commissions when they sold games that they streamed online. The Curse platform, a piece of software that they built for use on personal computers, was rebranded as a piece of Twitch software as well. 
What this all adds up to is a service that allows people to play video games online on a YouTube-like platform that allows them to show their faces and the game screen at the same time so people from around the world can watch them play games and watch their responses and listen to their commentary, both in real time and later, as these videos are typically recorded as they're being streamed, and they remain available on the site to watch afterward. Gamers streaming on Twitch have the option to become affiliates for gaming companies. Meaning, if I went on Twitch and streamed myself playing XCOM 2, and someone saw me playing it and thought, hey, that looks like a great game, I want to play that as well, they could click on my little purchase button to buy the game, and I would receive a cut of that sale for bringing them that business. Some broadcasters have advertisements on their channels, and streamers on Twitch can also receive donations straight from viewers, who generally receive some kind of on-screen acknowledgement of their donation as it comes in. And folks can also create a recurring donation to players, kind of like on Patreon. And as I mentioned before, Amazon Prime subscribers all get credit with which they can do this. Just for being a member, you have $5 a month that you can donate to any gamer streaming on Twitch that you happen to like. This combination of elements, along with the increased and increasing interest in video games across all demographics, has turned Twitch into a video streaming powerhouse that as of February 2018 brings in 15 million active users a day and about 2 million broadcasters, people who are streaming themselves playing games every month. Twitch has its own convention called TwitchCon, and has been slowly increasing its support for and promotion of non-gaming communities that are broadcasting on their site as well, including musicians, artists who paint or illustrate live on camera, programmers who live develop in front of their audiences, and even cosplayers, automotive repair experts, and people who paint miniatures for tabletop games like Warhammer. It's a standing question whether Amazon's move here is to build a platform that actively competes with YouTube beyond their core offering of video game streams that compete with the far less popular YouTube gaming platform, which is kind of a Twitch clone. It stands to reason that they could continue to cash in on the public's apparently vast desire to watch other people do things live on camera, but it could be that they're just dabbling and will instead stay pretty laser-focused on their video game streaming core. Which, if you're going to choose a core focus, is a pretty good one to choose, especially right now. What I would like to talk about today is exactly that. The current status of video games, the emergence of esports, of competitive video gaming, and the shifts that are occurring in this industry that are causing explosive growth in both revenue and audience. And I'll approach all of this through the lens of one particular game that has quickly become dominant in a number of different spaces due to its clever approach to the video game market. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled Fortnite Made Nearly $300 Million in the Month of April. 
$300 million is a lot of money for any product to earn in a single month. But what's particularly amazing in this case is that Fortnite made almost all of that money by selling in-game items, as the game itself is free to play. Now there's a chance that you've heard about Fortnite recently, even if you haven't played it or even know anything about it yourself. The game began its life as sort of a zombie survival game. It's a third-person view shooter, so the camera usually hovers behind the character that you control on the screen. And the idea is that a globe-straddling storm has appeared, and 98% of the world's population has disappeared. And for those unlucky 2% who are left, there are now zombies trying to kill them. And yes, this is perhaps not the most complex and meaningful story ever told, but during the period when it was being developed, Minecraft and Left 4 Dead were super popular games. So there's a good chance that they were trying to build something similar, or at least referential, to those already market-proven titles, along with the sort of new combat dynamic that they had built that allows you to build fortifications and other structures within the game while you collect weapons to defend yourself against the storm and the zombies. This game was announced six years earlier, way back in 2011, so that development period was quite a long period of time. Now for perspective on that, in 2011, the Nintendo 3DS was first released. Console gamers were playing the PS3, Xbox 360, and Nintendo Wii, and a game called Skyrim was released, which recommended that PC owners have 4 gigabytes of RAM, 6 gigabytes of hard drive space, and a 1 gigabyte video card. None of which may make a whole lot of sense to you if you're not into gaming or computers, but basically it was a while ago. Things have changed substantially on multiple levels in the interim, and those are pretty tame specs that I just listed off for what was considered to be a high-end game at the time. Something else that changed dramatically was the availability and increased popularity of platforms like Steam, which allows game makers to sell their work to customers while reducing the overhead of packaging and shipping and things like that. Many games were downloaded after being purchased using various online means already, but these types of platforms also acted as digital rights management, or DRM, software, making it far more difficult to pirate games because you have to open the Steam software to play the games that you bought through it, which keeps tabs on any bad behavior. An added bonus to platforms like Steam is that for gamers, they can find a huge array of old and new games to buy, often with discounts. And for game companies, they can sell games before they are fully completed via pre-order and early access systems, the former of which allows gamers to pay for the game and then generally get it a little sooner than the rest of the video game playing public, and the latter of which allows gamers to play early versions of the game before all of the bugs are completely worked out, at which point it's playable but not totally polished. Fortnite was released under the Early Access program through PC-based platforms like Steam and through console sales channels like the PlayStation and Xbox online stores. And as a paid Early Access offering, Fortnite was a pretty big success, selling half a million copies and successfully getting a crazy amount of promotion, both via those channels and through free copies that were given to well-known gamers who streamed 
their play on services like Twitch. This game had a lengthier-than-usual early access period, which is thought to have contributed to its success, as seeing gamers play it in real life allows the developers to make real-world relevant tweaks and fixes rather than just theoretical ones. But where this story takes an interesting turn is that for all that Fortnite has done pretty well through these early access programs and is still available in that zombie fighting storm dodging form, which is now called the Standard Edition. And you can get that for somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 as of the day I'm recording this. What people are often referring to when they talk about Fortnite today, both in the news and when raving about how addicted they are to it online, is a spin-off game called Fortnite Battle Royale which hit the scene again as an early access game in late September of 2017. Now, the timing on that is important because as it turns out, the time between that release and the release of the standard edition of Fortnite is almost precisely the amount of time it takes to rewire a game's mechanics to more or less copy another game that was released to amazing reviews and a great deal of fanfare particularly on sites like Twitch, and that copied game came out around at the same time as that standard edition, the zombie-killing, storm-avoiding, building-things game that they released first. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, otherwise known as PUBG, is an online multiplayer game that grew out of a collection of mods made to other games, which involved basically rewriting elements of those games to introduce new homemade characters and plots and point systems and maps and things like that. And these mods in particular used the Japanese film Battle Royale as inspiration. In the Japanese film, which came out in 2000 and which was based on a book that was released in 1999, a group of high school-aged students are forced to fight to the death by the Japanese government on an island where they can find and fashion resources and weapons which they must use to kill each other. Only one student will remain alive at the end, and all of them wear explosive collars that will kill them if they don't participate in this battle to survive and kill each other, or if they stumble into danger zones, the location of which changes daily. The Battle Royale model, then, is predicated on limited space, generally an assemblage of random and often exotic weapons, and environmental factors that incentivize people to think strategically, while also not just hanging out. The environment, in some way, forces them into contact with each other. PUBG is a game that plays on this concept and makes use of relatively simple graphics, but stunningly effective game mechanics. Up to 100 players parachute from a plane down onto a map that is about 5 miles or 8 kilometers square. So they're able to choose from above where they land and how soon or how late they jump compared to other players. They then search the environment for weapons, armor, and items that allow them to heal damage that they take and other various resources. They can make use of buildings and trees and rocks and things like that for shelter, and they can drive around in vehicles to cover long distances faster. It's a super simple setup that is made compelling by the fact that the zone of play, the area that is safe to occupy, shrinks over time. So while the entire map is accessible at the beginning of the game, after a period of time has elapsed, 
The players are warned about the impending shrinkage of safe areas, and anyone caught outside the new safe zone when the clock ticks down will take damage till they die. So over the course of about 30 minutes, the players are pushed closer and closer to each other, and the winner is the last player standing. They are rewarded with in-game currency based on how long they lasted, how many other players they killed, and how much damage they did to other players, which they can then spend to buy aesthetic customizations that don't give them any advantage in the game, which is something that most players like, as it keeps anyone from being able to stack the deck in their favor. Everyone starts the game with nothing. But these items do give them a sort of street cred. It allows them to deck out their avatars in funny or intimidating outfits, or to play as a famous character of some kind instead of as a generic avatar. PUBG was also released as an early play game, and it totally dominated Twitch for a while, in part because it's just a well-balanced, interesting game with a lot of potential for memorable moments, and in part because of all that on-air promotion on Twitch that was worth its weight in gold in terms of advertising to a gaming audience. The makers of Fortnite saw all of this success and saw that this game model was doing incredibly well. People were just going gaga over it, and they realized that they could make a battle royale version of their game, which they were, again, releasing about that time, but they could rework it. They could use many of the same mechanics that PUBG was using if they essentially modded their own newly released game to copy this other game. And so they took all of the elements involved in this newly finished game and built a spin-off, a battle royale version that they were able to get out the door in a matter of months. And because development costs were so much less for this new version of the game, they had to build some new mechanics and maps and such, but most of the heavy lifting was already done. After a quick experiment with a paid early release funding model, like they used with their main game, the Standard Edition, they were able to release Fortnite Battle Royale as a free-to-play game in late September of 2017, and it took off almost immediately. One main element that still divides Fortnite's Battle Royale spinoff and PUBG's more straightforward Battle Royale experience is the building system that carried over from the Zombie Apocalypse game into the newer version. You can harvest just about anything in the environment for wood and metal and stone and other resources to build structures that you can construct unrealistically quickly, which allows quick-fingered players to essentially run up the side of a building as they are constructing that building, which allows them to build their own high ground and defensive positions as they move, and which then potentially allows them to get the drop on another player who is suddenly below them and exposed. If you've never seen either of these games played, I highly recommend watching a match on Twitch or YouTube at some point. That's one of the fastest ways to get exposure to streaming culture and what gaming has done to that space, and vice versa. But the games themselves also tend to be pretty frantic and fast-paced and interesting to watch, even if you're not immediately certain of what's happening or typically drawn to that sort of entertainment. Of course, these days, you can actually snag a copy of these games for yourself as well. Mobile versions of both Fortnite Battle Royale and PUBG are available on iOS devices for free, with paid upgrades if you want them, and Android versions are set to be released in the near future. Both are also available for consoles and computers, if that's more your speed, so you could just dive in and play a few rounds for kicks with relatively low investment 
if you like. Part of why that business model works, the free with optional things to buy model, is a consequence of what's called software as a service, or in this case, gaming as a service. Software as a service has become an incredibly popular business model, from its humble beginnings back in the early 2000s to today, where even formally productized offerings, like Adobe Photoshop and Microsoft Word, have become subscriptions instead of tools that you buy just once, and maybe upgrade every five years. Versions of this model existed earlier as well, but they really took off with the dawn of affordable and pervasive high-speed internet, and then further with the emergence of high-speed mobile internet on smartphones. Before that, anytime you wanted to offer an upgrade for a piece of software, you would need to print, package, and mail new disks to all of your customers, which was expensive, but also a little bit cumbersome and tedious, so you didn't want to do it too often. When you have software on devices connected to the internet, though, you can just issue a patch or a formal update, but no additional expenses are required except for that labor to update the program. This model became particularly appealing to the makers of apps for smartphones and other such devices because they found that users were generally more casual than those of personal computers, for instance. Rather than buying professional-grade software or high-end games, these users were just everyday people, not hardcore gamers or pros. So developers stood a far better chance of reaching their market on scale by offering their app for free. And this freemium model assumed that a small percentage of players or users would actually buy something through the app once they have it. And if they were able to get their app onto millions of devices, even those small percentages start to look pretty good in terms of revenue. So tucked inside the free versions of their applications, they could offer upgrades to premium versions of that app for a monthly or a yearly fee. They could offer additional content, like a perpetually expanding library of filters to put on your photos through this photo app. Or they could offer digital currencies that allow users to play the game more frequently or to get new levels, or that provide different experiences within the game. For instance, like providing skins for these avatars. And as I mentioned before, many of these games, especially those that are looking to maintain a reputation for being competition class rather than purely casual, offer primarily aesthetic upgrades that have more to do with gaming and pop culture than they have to do with the game itself. If you sell better weapons using these types of currencies, soon the game isn't fun because you have to spend a fortune to be able to compete with your spendier opponent who dropped 50 bucks for all the best weapons. If you sell movie and TV and comic book character tie-ins, though, characters that just look different but don't do anything different, and if you sell wild and crazy weapons from science fiction and fantasy novels without changing the dynamic of the game and giving advantage to people who pay more, then you still stand a good chance of earning, well, upward of $300 million per month, like Fortnite did, but you can do it without watering down your reputation as being a competition-class gaming experience. Gaming competitions make up another facet of this larger video game industry story, and their maintenance of that balance is another reason why the Fortnite craze has gone from big within the gaming world to just big in general, getting a whole lot of airtime, even in the non-gaming press, because of the game's growing ubiquity. 
There was another article on The Verge recently entitled, Epic Will Provide $100 Million for Fortnite Competition Prize Pools in Its First Year. Epic is the main production company behind Fortnite, and $100 million is a whole lot of money in the world of esports. For comparison, Valve, the company behind Steam, that DRM and game selling platform that I mentioned before, has paid out over $140 million in tournaments for their online multiplayer strategy game Defense of the Ancients 2. But that's been over the course of the last five years, and across 900 tournaments. Tournaments for Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, and League of Legends have both paid out just north of $50 million apiece. And tournaments for StarCraft II and Heroes of the Storm, two games made by the gaming company Activision Blizzard, have paid out a little over $26 million and $13 million, respectively. So that puts the $100 million prize announcement for the first year by Fortnite into better context. It's more than any other game has had available in such competitions during that time span, ever. And that figure was released alongside announcements of the game becoming available to more casual players through phone-based versions of the game. So it's implied that not only full-time gamers will have a shot at earning some serious money, casual players may be able to get into the rankings as well. And they could just play from their couch and climb their way up the leaderboard. Now, if that sounds like a lot of money for something that almost sounds fake, esports is not yet a common term after all, then you may have missed out on some of the recent happenings in this facet of the gaming industry, which is focused on presenting pro video gaming as a real, legit, professional sport, much like basketball or bowling or bobsledding, all of which can be played casually and all of which have components where players are taken more seriously and where competitors can actually make a living from their craft. And importantly, for the business side of things anyway, where audiences gladly pay to watch them perform by purchasing tickets for the events and by watching ads that are placed within recorded streams of the events. There were video game competitions as far back as 1972, when Stanford University hosted what they called an Intergalactic Space War Olympics, offering a year's subscription to Rolling Stone magazine to the best player of Space War an incredibly simple, by today's standards, early video game, and the first ever video game to have a local area network style, multiple computer multiplayer setup. But in the decades since, the introduction of networked personal computers and the internet broadened the scope and scale of video game competitions. There were big Nintendo game competitions held at conventions and the like back in the 90s, but they never really expanded into the mainstream consciousness, reaching beyond the gaming world dedicates. The PC and internet revolution, though, allowed people to compete from their own home against other people from around the world. That led companies like Blizzard to orient some of their games... Back then, their game StarCraft was a particular favorite, and both the original and sequel StarCraft remain favorites in competitive gaming circuits today. They oriented some of their games around competition play, so they built their online multiplayer platform around regional and global rankings, ensuring that you would typically face off against people of about your same skill and experience level, but also ensuring that if you're really killing it at a particular game, you will gain in rank 
and could at some point be tapped to compete in a more formal tournament at some point. So there was something more real feeling on the line, even during casual play, because of the existence of that ranking system and these higher level tournaments. Like so many things, the smartphone revolution caused the world of gaming to balloon because suddenly the interfaces required to play video games were simplified, no longer requiring precise, deep knowledge of controllers and keyboards and mice, all of which were replaced by easier to grok, easier to pick up quickly touchscreens. This space also expanded because, as I mentioned before, many of the games were suddenly cheap or free, allowing people who didn't want to drop 50 bucks on a game to instead download something that looked interesting for free. They could be playing that game within a few minutes and for no upfront investment, which proved to be a superior entry point for that type of platform. And for many would-be players who likely would never have tried their hand at video games otherwise. Smartphones also proved to be an upgrade to the watching other people play games industry, as people were suddenly now able to play games on their phones and stream the screen of their phone to the internet so other people could watch them play, as they did, and they could also use their own phones to watch other people playing on their phones. No longer do video game consoles and PCs dominate this space. The vast majority of people in the developed world have gaming-capable devices with them at all times, in their pockets. And those same devices have made esports, both the playing and watching of them, immensely popular. Computers and consoles are still hugely popular as well, but smartphones are what made video games mainstream. Interestingly, although some more traditional TV channels, including sports stations like ESPN2 and 3, have broadcast video game tournaments on their airwaves in the past, most of the action seems to be online these days. And some of the streaming companies that are focused on presenting esports matches are being courted by traditional broadcasters and by traditional sports-oriented companies like Turner Broadcasting to create longer-term, more intertwined partnerships. We're also seeing employment shakeups between traditional sports media and new video game media. One high-level example of this is former executive for ESPN and the NFL Network, Steve Bernstein, who was hired by video game company Activision Blizzard to head up their esports division a couple of years ago. So there's overlap in these spaces, but the weight of spectator sport media seems to be slowly shifting toward online streaming, and particularly the online streaming of video games. There are several technologies on the horizon that could fairly radically shift this industry even further if everything goes according to plan for the companies that are investing heavily in them. Apple has been putting a lot of time and resources into an advanced version of their augmented reality framework, ARKit, for instance. And it's rumored that near-future devices, potentially even the next iPhone model, will have new hardware that increases their capabilities in this regard, which will then pave the way for some kind of augmented reality glasses or goggles that they have in the pipeline for some time around the year 2020. Augmented reality is kind of like virtual reality, but overlaid on top of reality. And there are already playable examples of very cool, interesting augmented reality games alongside much simpler but still kind of compelling games. You pull on these augmented reality glasses and you can play chess 
against someone else, each of you with your own pair of glasses, each of you looking down at the coffee table and seeing a virtual chessboard that is not there, but able to move the pieces around and see what the other player does. Virtual reality also has massive potential for these sorts of use cases. The distinction when it comes to gaming between VR and AR is typically whether it's fully immersive or just partially immersive. But augmented reality seems to be a little bit more versatile at the moment, in my opinion, but VR has its own potentiality as well. There's certain things that that type of space makes a whole lot more sense for, especially in terms of very atmospheric types of games. We will see how it all plays out, but expect a lot more to be released in this space over the next few months, especially as newer, smaller, less battery-hungry microprocessors become available, which could allow for smaller, more interesting, and much more usable AR and VR devices than are currently possible at a marketable price. It's likely we will also see more gaming systems that opt for compatibility with other objects, real-life objects and components, much like Nintendo's Switch has done with their Labo cardboard gaming sets. I did an episode about the Labo not long ago that was entitled Cardboard Entertainment and talked about how this approach is kind of a melding of some of the at-home building and programming kits that folks are buying and the world of board games, which has seen a resurgence over the past decade, and more traditional mobile and console-based video games. I suspect, especially as augmented reality becomes something more people are aware of and comfortable with, and as soon as the hardware and software catch up, with developers' ambitions, we will be seeing a whole lot more crossover products of that kind. Not just because it would be interesting and cool, but because it's another possible business model for companies that know their audience has gotten used to downloading their main products for free, which leaves them requiring a way to make money from that free app that they now have in so many people's pockets. Tangible add-ons to free digital products gives them another opportunity to lure customers in with a compelling free offering and then to earn money subsequently from those customers over time, perhaps over the course of years, with these additional products that then plug into the main app in some way. The world of video games is evolving very quickly, both as a product and as a business. There's a decent chance that broadcasting videos of people playing video games could turn out to be worth more than actually making video games at some point in the relatively near future. It's also possible that the next professional video gamer could be you tapping away on your phone from your home or a coffee shop, winning a chunk of a huge amount of money and competing against other people who are doing the same all around the world. Remember how I said Fortnite made $300 million in one month recently? That new Avengers movie, Infinity War had the biggest box office opening of all time, raking in $258.2 million, less than Fortnite. The comparison there is a little off, as the Avengers figure is for their opening weekend and the Fortnite money is for an entire month. But still, Marvel's corporate overlord, Disney, is arguably one of the more savvy companies in the world of movies and other traditional media. And their most recent crown jewel looks almost sluggish next to the pace and earnings of a video game product that is still technically not finished. It's still an early release game. 
the video game world's present today is already looking pretty good. But their future, even their near future, could very well prove to be many times better, so long as we look at the big picture. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I was a little bit skeptical about picking up, honestly, because I worried that it might just be Silicon Valley gossip, and I wasn't particularly interested in that. But I read an excerpt from it somewhere and really liked the writing style, and I thought the storyline was very compelling. And so I picked it up and gave it a read. And it's definitely an incredible book. It's very well reported, it's very well written, and it's about an interesting topic. The book is entitled Bad Blood. Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, and it's by John Carreyrou. Now, this book is the story of Theranos, which, if you haven't heard of it, was a multi-billion dollar, I think they had about $9 billion in valuation at one point. It was a biotech startup that had to do with blood, and the concept was that instead of having to draw a decent amount of blood to get screened for diseases and to develop treatments for diseases... They could just take a drop of blood and use modern technology and sci-fi wizardry to do all the same thing, but in a much cleaner, more consumer-friendly way. That was the concept, but they could never really get it going. And as it turns out, the guy who wrote this book broke this story, and the company kind of unraveled as a consequence of all of this coming out, but they never really got it to work. And yet, they were able to continue to pull in increasing amounts of money from investors and get incredible coverage in the technology press as a consequence of essentially using the right words, being super confident, and doing all of the things that we kind of today make fun of Silicon Valley companies for doing. It's become a bit of a joke. You recognize the terminology that they use and the styles that pervade there. And this is exactly what happened here. The owner of this company, the founder of the company, Elizabeth Holmes, who is by all indications a very smart, vaguely sociopathic, vaguely Machiavellian person, kind of based her image on Steve Jobs and did the whole take no prisoners, my way or the highway type of CEOing. And when things didn't go her way, she continued to obfuscate and outright lie to investors. And so this book is the story of how it was started, of this incredibly compelling, if again, kind of sociopathic person who founded it, and of the unspiraling that happened as a consequence of this stuff starting to come out. So it's a non-fiction book. This is all a true story. It's told by a very talented author and journalist, and it is definitely not just Silicon Valley gossip. Definitely worth a read if you are interested in those topics. Again, the title is Bad Blood, and the author is John Carreyrou. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can read my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. I'll be going on tour very soon, and you can find the list of tour stops and dates, and you can buy tickets at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.
Thank mm-hmm. you.